Thanks for joining us for today's message. Here at Temple Baptist, we're a church on a mission, connecting people to Jesus and to one another. Life is just a little too full, a little too busy. Think about it for a second here. I'm supposed to spend meaningful time with someone else who could potentially be my life's partner, and I'm supposed to make a quick decision in a matter of a few minutes about whether or not to go the next stage with them. I mean, if the ancients were with us now looking at our courting processes, they would think we're crazy. They'd laugh their heads off at us. Or what about some rushed devotional times, quiet times with the Lord? I have an app on my phone that's called Pray as you go. Now, oddly enough, this app works for me, but I think I use it differently than the way that the designers of this app really intended it to be used. I I think the premise was this, life is very busy, especially during the mornings, so why not multitask while you're trying to spend time with God? You can spend time with the Lord while you're shaving, while you're preparing that morning cup of coffee, or, or the pot of coffee. You, you can spend time with Him while you're rushing off to the go train. That multitasking, I think, ruins the whole thing. Our quiet time with the Lord, isn't it supposed to be somewhat related to being fully present and fully attentive to the Lord? Secondly, I've noticed that we get easily irritated. Easily, we, we lose our patience with things that are still relatively quick, almost instant, when they don't move or happen quick enough for us. Our impatience is a sign that perhaps we're living too quickly. And lastly, one of the things I've noticed is that we don't have the capacity anymore to pause for things that are deeply meaningful and important, things that are profound, things that have a transcendent value to them. And case in point, funeral processions. When I was a kid, if a funeral procession was going by, the car would pull over. There was no debate. There was no pause. You knew exactly what to do. You would pull over to the curb until the cars went by. And if I was in the car with my grandfather, it was quiet because this was a solemn moment. And he didn't just pull back out in traffic after the first 10 cars went by. He waited for every car, for the last car with headlights on to go by. And then he waited a little longer in case somebody got delayed. And then he would wait after that out of respect. Now, I don't know what your habit is when it comes to funeral processions going down streets, but if you're still in the habit of pulling over, you'll likely notice that there's a pile of cars between you pulled over and the funeral procession going by on the other side that are whizzing by you, almost oblivious to what's going on. Why? Because our day planners are too full. We have too many appointments, too many meetings to pause for just a second and honor a life that was and is no more. Or to pay our respects to a family that's already beginning to mourn and struggle with their sense of loss. Or to acknowledge the Creator, the one who called all of life into being, the one who gives and who takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 30, verses 15 to 18 the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. 
You said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you will all flee away till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. The word of the Lord. So why Egypt? Why not pick the Assyrians? Why not team up with them rather than these guys? Well, the reasons are probably several fold. But we know from, from the passage that at least one of the reasons had something to do with horses. Whether this was a reference to their chariots or to their cavalry, they were making a choice, a strategic choice, one that was about the perceived advantage of speed. You could look at verse 16 here and the words horse and the words flee or fleeing are a rhyming pair, sus and nus, or sus and nus. So that we don't miss the point in this passage that the horse, the symbolic significance has less to do with the beauty of a horse, the power of the horse, the fact that it's a, it's a mode of transportation, and had everything to do with the capacity for speed, the capacity to go fast. I think this is what was going on in the ancient minds of those Hebrews Here's what we'll do. We will team up with the Egyptians, and then with the horses, the fast horses that they provide us with, we will fly into battle against the Assyrians. It's interesting. The word can be translated flee or fly, and sometimes it can be translated disappear, as in the sense moving so quickly that you're here now, poof, gone tomorrow, or gone in the next second. They thought in their heads, we will move so quickly that we will take the fight to the Assyrians. Problem is, their speed didn't work for them. It failed them. On the battlefield, outnumbered, outgunned, confronted by the, honestly, the quite cruel and horrific Assyrians, they were overcome with fear, and they took off, and they ran as fast as they could. Now catch the irony here. Their intended means of victory became their necessary means for escape. The horses, the fast horses, the whole thing's turned upside down. Double irony, those so-called swift horses were not swift enough to get away from their enemies. Their enemies were faster, hunted them down, chased them down, caught them, destroyed them. They weren't fast enough. Fast forward 2,800 years now, and let me ask you, do you ever find yourself on a day where you just can't move fast enough? You just can't go quick enough to keep up? I mean, regardless of your bandwidth, regardless of your capacity to multitask, regardless of your, your craving for speed and for agility yourself, do you ever find yourself on days where you just... You're doing all you can. You're swimming water, but you can't keep afloat. You feel like you're drowning. I mean, you can't squeeze in one more email or one more Zoom meeting. There's not time for one more trip to the soccer field or one more uh, social luncheon. 
that you want to entertain with, you just can't keep up. You just can't go fast enough. It seems the faster you go, the further behind you you fall, or the further behind you get. Carl Honoré, again, has this to say about the dilemma, and I love the imagery he uses. He says, in our fast-moving modern world, it always seems that the time train is pulling out of the station just as we reach the platform. No matter how fast we go, no matter how clever we schedule, there are never enough hours in a day. Friends, if you find yourself at a place in life, in a space in life where you are frustrated by the futility of your haste and your hurry, and you're just exhausted, then hear freshly again the gentle and the gracious invitation of the Lord as I read for you once more Isaiah 30, verse 15. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Friends, the liberation from the rat race, deliverance from the litany of the oughts and the shoulds and the musts and I have tos is found in repentance. Literally, it's found in a return to the Lord. And in that turning back to Him, it also involves a renouncing of, a break with, confidence in our own agility, our own ability to accelerate in the development, the crafting of a new trust in God who is the one who always provides a way for us. He's the one who gets it done. He's the one who makes it happen for us. God offers himself to us and basically leaves us with a choice. You can continue doing what you're doing. In fact, you could double down. You can get up earlier. You can run longer. And you can run harder every day. Or you can embrace this invitation and step into a way of life that is characterized less by hurry and more by rest and quiet and stillness. And you will be able to practice that way of life in the full awareness that shalom, our well-being in this world, has nothing to do with our striving, has nothing to do with our ingenuity or our cleverness. Our well-being in life is always a matter of divine grace. Doing well in life is always a matter of sheer grace. This is why I love both the theology and the practice of Sabbath. We stop one day in seven. In fact, we, we sleep about a third of every 24-hour period, and we do so for two reasons. One, we take that day off, we sleep every night because we need to rest. Our bodies need to be rejuvenated. They need to recoup. They, re they, they need to re-energize. And so we stop. But in that stopping, we also gain the benefit of a reminder. Because we notice that when we pause, and when we take that day off, when we sleep through the night, God still provides. 
He keeps the world going. He keeps life for us going. And in that, we're also reminded that on the other days, when we move, when we work, when we try hard, it's not us that's getting it done. It is still the Lord that is providing for us. It is never us, friends. Now, I think you notice that this passage is a lot about hurry, rushing, speed, acceleration. But did you notice that in this passage, there's at least one person who doesn't seem to be in a hurry? The Lord. God. As I read verse 18 for you again, or at least the first part, I want you to to listen, to read between the lines with me. Verse 18, yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. I know I read those two lines and, and I'm left with the sense that God doesn't seem to be any hurry. He doesn't seem to be to mind taking his time at this point. He's quite relaxed exercising patience when it comes to extending his compassion to us, his grace to us. And why is he willing to wait? I think it's because he wants the delusions that fill our life to be shattered. He wants us on our own to come to the realization, to come to the full awareness that not only is our hurry and haste ineffective, it's also life depleting. Our rushing around is life sucking. That's never what he intended for us. And I think this is what he does with the nation of Judah. Basically he says, fine, you want an alliance with Egypt? Go ahead and do it. But don't say I didn't tell you so. They form their alliance. The Egyptians, of course, are crushed with the Assyrians. Judah's left standing alone. The Assyrians roll into Judah. They basically level every other city but Jerusalem. They, they cart nearly 200,000 uh, people and send them off into exile. The Hebrew people take them off to a foreign land where there they live as captives. They basically force the emptying of the treasury in the temple in Jerusalem because the king, this attacking king, needed to be paid tribute. And it was all said and done. They still placed a siege on the city of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem managed to survive the siege. God was gracious and preserved them. But it wasn't without cost. They were left still standing, but they were left humiliated. I love the way that um, Isaiah puts it, like a flagpole on top of a mountain. And even better is the translation that we get from Eugene Peterson in the message. He said that that city was like a flagpole on a hill with no flag. A signpost on a roadside with the sign torn off. I don't know if you get the imagery, but basically the idea is that of barrenness and uselessness. But it's in Judah's stripping. It's in Jerusalem's stripping that she is finally able to see how ludicrous it was to put her confidence in an alliance with Egypt, to put her ultimate trust in, in horses, no matter how swift they might be. God wanted the nation to see that for himself so that she would turn back to, them, back to him, and then he'd be fully ready to bless her, to be compassionate on her. For a second, go with me back to the beginning of COVID. I know it's a little while ago. It's 18 months ago now. 
you remember the early days? Do you remember the forced closures and the stay-at-home orders? No travel, no restaurant. The only shopping that was allowed was essential shopping, and our, our entertainment was basically reduced to table games and puzzles and a little bit of Netflix binging. Now, if I described that world for many of you six months before COVID began and said, this is what it's going to be like, you'd go, oh my goodness, that's awful. I, I, I won't be able to survive that. And you'd be a little panic-stricken about what we're about to go through. And yet, think of what those early days were actually like. Tell me that the, the most energetic energizer bunny amongst us, or the most extroverted extrovert you know, didn't fall in love with just a little bit those early days of COVID. The unhurried pace, the empty calendar. I, I know I did. I mean, I'm someone who has a relatively full work calendar, relatively full social life, but oh, in love with those early days of, of the pandemic and the restrictions around that. We, we live in Hamilton up on the mountain, my wife Sharon and I, and uh, we're about 500 meters from the escarpment where the Bruce Trail runs through. Now, we knew the Bruce Trail was there. We'd been on it lots of times before, biking, running, walking. But during those early months of COVID, we spent a lot of time walking to, and hiking together. Often, well, almost every day, we were out on the trail. In fact, many times we were out there two, dime, two times a day. And we found in the rest and the relaxation and the leisure of that, that it was good for us. It was good for us in a fitness way. It was good for our health. Having time alone walking and talking on the trail was good for our marriage, the intimacy of our marriage. And we found that it was good for our souls as well. There was something about being in nature that was almost sacramental, that connected us with the Creator in a way that, almost instantaneously and deeply in a way that other spiritual practices don't quite do the same. It was a good thing for us, and I absolutely loved it, but then things changed. Some of the restrictions were lifted, at least partially. Some of the restrictions removed partially. I looked at my day planner. All of a sudden, I noticed I had a couple meetings on during the week. I mean, physical meetings where you have to show up. I noticed some social invites showing up in my inbox. I mean, I, there was a time in my life where I had no problem going from Friday night to Sunday. Nonstop work obligations and, and social life and things that needed to be done around the house. But all of a sudden, I find myself on a Monday looking at my week. I've got one thing on my calendar, a dinner party on Friday night, and I can start to feel the anxiety coming up inside me. I'm not quite used to this. Now, obviously, out of practice with the social schedule, but maybe... That's also a sign for us that we were never intended to live life as busily and as hectic as we had in the past. It wasn't good for us. Never was not good for us now. Now, I want to be careful not to over-romanticize the pandemic. I want to acknowledge here that there's been a lot of suffering, economic suffering, mental health, loneliness. Some people who have gotten COVID, it's been more than a few sniffles. There are going to be long, hard implications for them, health implications. And in some cases, there has been a loss of life. So I do not want to minimize that 
I do not want to over-romanticize the pandemic. Nor do I necessarily, in my final comment, want to put God on the hook for the pandemic, to, to blame him as the author of all that suffering. Although having said that, it would not be uncommon for God to enter into less than pleasant situations, into horrible situations, to grab those circumstances, to turn them upside down on their head, and repurpose them for his good, redemptive purposes in this world. Call back to mind the words of Joseph to his brothers when he's kind of confronting them with their treachery. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. So it certainly wouldn't be out of character for God to use something as horrific as a pandemic to work good, even if he didn't cause it. So with that as a disclaimer, with that as a background, let me leave you with this final question. Is there a chance that God, out of his love and compassion for us, used the pandemic and the stripping of our leisure and entertainment life, our travel and our shopping, a stripping of our, social, our, um, our ability to get together with people and host people for luncheons? Is there a chance that he stripped the incessant activity of our life to show us the bankruptcy of the frenzied and frenetic ways that we had been living before. Thanks for listening, and consider joining us live on Sundays at 9.15 and 11 a.m. For our address, directions, and any other information, find us online at templebaptist.com.